think what you did, the way that you allowed him to see your humanity, I think you did save your life. Yeah. Yeah. And that was strong and that was courageous. Thank you. I finally think so too. <laughs> yeah. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Before I introduce our guest, I want to let our listeners know that this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. Please check in with yourself and listen only if it feels right to do so. Today on Badass, we are speaking with Anna Miller, formerly Anna Hogg. Anna hails from Bloomington, Indiana, where she lives with her husband and a flock of chickens on five rolling acres. Anna has spent her life nurturing children and families. She has a degree in human development and family studies from Indiana University. Currently, she works as a nursery school teacher and as a postpartum doula. She spends her free time tending her lovely garden and laughing at the antics of her chickens. Today, Anna is allowing us into a very difficult period of her life. At 14, Anna was raped by her boyfriend, who was 16 at the time. It was an experience that derailed her for three years. She withdrew into herself and tried to make sense of what had happened to her. Just after emerging from that experience and finding herself again, Anna was raped by a stranger in a parking lot at Knife Point. This second experience plunged Anna into PTSD and terror. She had to grapple with that terror every day for years as she healed her spirit and her body. Anna is sharing her story with us so that we might understand the impact of sexual assault, how it forever changes a person, and the immense amount of work required to heal from the experience. Anna, welcome to Badass. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much. Yes. I wanted to start by asking you about who you were before the first assault. What were you like? How did you see the world? I started out in my life with a very utopian experience. Um, I was born into an intentional community in West Virginia, and my experience was that the world was really safe and kind. Mm-hmm. All the children, all the adults, everybody around me was kind. And um, we came to Bloomington when I was almost five. And even though it was such a different setting, I lived right downtown on Kirkwood, I still never had the the feeling that I was anything but safe. Mm-hmm. I would say that people liking me was really important to me. Um, my younger sister has a disability, and it was just necessary that most of our family's focus and energy be uh, going toward her. And so I remember really feeling outside of my family like it was important to me to have friends it was important to me to me to be liked um and i would say 
when I was turning 14, um, this rape happened just a few days after, I think, or maybe a, a month after, I would say that I was just starting to actually feel confident. Mm. I was starting to um, believe that people enjoyed me mm-hmm. because it took a long time for me to believe that. But I think I had gotten there. And actually meeting this person, it it impacted that positively at first because he was new and I thought he was so cute and he wanted to spend time with me. Mm-hmm. And so that was affirming. Um, so yeah, I was creative and happy and gymnastics and you know, created art and yeah, yeah yeah things were good yeah a pretty vital young young you know girl turning into a woman yeah especially right then yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so you were in this new relationship with this 16 year old mm-hmm. and uh I, I know from us talking that he was getting ready to move to another city. Yes. Yeah. And so you kind of felt like you were spending, you know, the last bit of time with him the week that the mm-hmm. rape occurred. Yes. Um, he had moved here from somewhere else and then was going back there. And, of course, said things like that. Of course, we were still going to be together because he had his driver's license and he could come visit and, you know, all of these things that made me feel special in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened um, the night that the assault occurred? Well, so previous to that, he had wanted to do things physically, sexually that I wasn't comfortable with. And up until then, I was able to kind of um, just deflect it. Um, That day, it was the last day that he was going to be in town. He came home from school with me, and we were alone in my house. My mom was at work. My sister was still at school. And he just very clearly had the intention that we were going to have sex before he left. Hey listeners, I wanted to cut in here and let you know that this is when we start going into some details about the date rape. If you'd like to avoid the details but still listen to the story, you can go ahead and skip ahead about four minutes and that should put you back into the story. day. It was the last day that he was going to be in town. He came home from school with me and we were alone in my house. My mom was at work. My sister was still at school. And he just very clearly had the intention that we were going to have sex before he left. And because I wanted him to like me. I wanted to believe that he cared about me and to believe that he meant it when he said that we would be together and he'd come visit. Um, I did not agree to have sex. I let him kiss me like 
something that we had done many times. So, but he, you know, he went farther and farther, and I was very uncomfortable with everything that was happening beyond the kissing. Um, at one point, I know that we talked about this. Um, he was doing things that physically felt good, mm-hmm. even though I didn't want it to be happening. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly difficult to sort out my feelings about not wanting it to happen and also being really confused and ashamed that my body was responding to it in a way that probably seemed positive. And I'm so glad that you're bringing this up Mm -hmm. because this is something that I've heard from a lot of survivors, especially from people who survived childhood sexual abuse, that... Mm -hmm. There are moments in the abuse experience or in the assault experience where your body, you have a physiological response. Your Mm -hmm. body responds. It does not mean that what is happening to you is okay or bringing you uh, pleasure in a way that, you know, is actually pleasing, right? Absolutely. Um, But it is actually just a physiological response. Thing that happens, and I think it's terribly confusing for people. Mm-hmm. How could I not want this, and yet it felt good? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the part that I really was not prepared to allow was penetration. And thinking back about it, I would assume that that would have been clear. Um, I just remember him making several attempts and me moving back away from him several times until my head hit the wall. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a no. Yeah, absolutely. If that someone is, is no. moving away from you until their head hits the wall, that's a no. Yeah, yes. And again, such an important thing to touch on because... I've also heard from many, many survivors that one of the things that happens when we experience an assault like this is that our voice just kind of goes, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, like those dreams um, that you have sometimes where it's like you're trying to scream and you can't, mm-hmm. uh, it, that happens during sexual assault. Yes. And uh, and so often people ask the infuriating question, well, did you say no? <laughs> and in like people's voice actually just leaves them and they mm-hmm. can't say no. And so mm-hmm. I'm so glad that that uh, you know, we're able to illustrate, you know, you were saying no in so many ways. I'm sure your facial expression was saying no. Your body language was saying no. You were actively moving away from him. There were so many ways in which you were saying no. This isn't okay with me. Please stop. Absolutely. Yeah. But he didn't stop. No. Yeah. And shortly after that, he went home. And the next morning, he moved away. And that was that. Mm-hmm. until about two months later, he showed up in town and found me where I was and wanted to apologize. Yeah. He knew that he had hurt me. He didn't understand how much. 
And he certainly wouldn't have considered it rape. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it was either at that time. Mm -hmm. What did you know? I knew that I was withdrawing socially. Maybe I didn't even know that. I don't think I knew anything. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like you were in shock. Probably so. Um, looking back, I know for certain that I withdrew socially. I'm sure other people were noticing things that I wasn't noticing at the time. I gained a lot of weight really quickly and didn't realize that was happening. Um, and when I actually realized what had happened and why I was feeling so strange and bad, um, we had a convocation in our high school and someone came to speak about rape. And afterward, somebody asked me what I thought and I remember just saying, well, it hit a little too close to home. Mm-hmm. Because it was during that that I realized what had happened and why it was such a big deal. Yeah. And I think a lot of young women are in the same boat, mm-hmm. you know, because their voice went and they couldn't say, no, stop. Mm-hmm. They feel as if, you know, it wasn't actually rape because they didn't say stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then you were sitting with the realization that you had been raped. Mm-hmm. At some point after that, I told my mom about it, but I didn't tell her too much. Um, and I imagine that for her, that was not a relief, but to understand why I had changed mm-hmm. was probably helpful to her as a mother. Um, I don't think I ever told my dad. Yeah. Yeah. How did your mom respond in terms of her ability to support you, believe you, recognize that this really was impacting you? She just felt sad that I was so young. She felt, I don't know if there's a word for how it feels when you're a mother whose daughter has been violated and... You yourself has been have been violated in the past. Um, she wouldn't mind if I said that the first time she was raped, she was four years old. Mm. So to have grown up with the experiences she grew up with, and then to have something like that happen to her daughter, um, I just remember her being sad and just wanting to be there for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it sounds like she really believed you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She always believed us about everything. Yeah. She sounds like a pretty awesome mom. She was amazing. Yeah. (laughs) This is the part where I grab a tissue. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you did have some support as you were recovering from this. Mm -hmm. And yet, it really does take time, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I was essentially alone with it. I don't think I ever really talked about it. I just, she just knew that Mm -hmm. something had happened. So, yeah, yeah, I was pretty alone with it. And things started getting better my senior year of high school. So this was in, this was my freshman year of high school that that happened. Uh, My senior year, 
my mom found out that she was pregnant. <laughs> she gave birth to my brother when she was 46. Oh, wow. I was 17. Um, I absolutely did not believe her and my stepdad when they told me. Um, but it became the best thing in my life. And I started feeling like myself again. People started asking me how I was losing so much weight. I didn't know that I was, just like I didn't know that my body was changing mm-hmm. after the date rape. I didn't know that it was changing with the anticipation of my brother being born. And I mean, that was that was an incredible experience to be like, oh, <laughs> I'm still this person um, and to be feeling good and more confident again. And so that was my senior year. I graduated. After graduation, my best friend and I decided we wanted to get an apartment in town. And both of my parents lived rurally at that point. We wanted to be in town. We wanted to find jobs so that we could explore and see what we wanted to do. Like, what did we want to study in college? So a couple of weeks after we moved into that apartment, we had both gotten jobs and um, I turned 18 mm-hmm. a f- couple weeks after we moved into the apartment and four days later on my sister's birthday is when I was raped in the parking lot. Wow. So... You had really just emerged from this experience of this first rape at 14 Mm -hmm. and found your joy again, Mm -hmm. started really moving your life in a direction. And then this thing happens. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and start, you know, with the couple of hours before the rape occurred. Mm I know that, you know, you, had, you hadn't planned on going out that night, but your roommate uh, had needed a ride home from work. And so yes. you were going to get your roommate. Mm-hmm. She had a car. It had broken down. She was finishing work at 11. And so I showed up to, to get her at 11. And because this was before cell phones and all of that, um, she hadn't been able to let me know that her car had been fixed and she didn't need a ride. And I said, well, that, you know, that's fine. I'll just, I'll head back and I'll see you in a little bit. So I drove back to the apartment complex, which had a parking lot that um, was hidden from the street by a row of trees. It wasn't well lit and it wasn't in front of any of the apartment entrances. So you had to go into this You'd be in this dark parking lot and then go around into the courtyard um, where there was some lighting. I pulled into a spot and was turning off the car and I saw somebody in the rearview mirror just like run past behind my car. Um, this is Bloomington, Indiana in the 90s. This is not the kind of place where you would see somebody walking through a parking lot and think anything of it. Yeah, yeah. That person just came home from somewhere too. 
for walking to their apartment. Yeah, I grew up in the same town during the same era, and Mm -hmm. I used to walk around at all hours of the night without thinking a thing of it. Yeah. Yeah, it just felt so safe. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't think anything of it. Hi, listeners. It's me again. I, I just wanted to let you know that this is another section where some of the details can get pretty disturbing. So if you feel like that's too much for you and you'd like to listen to the story without hearing those details, go ahead and skip ahead again. This time, skip ahead about seven and a half minutes and you'll miss most of the disturbing details. I didn't think anything of it. Um, and as soon as I opened the door of the car, there was a man right there. I don't know if I made a sound. Mm-hmm. I know that. I remember the feeling in my body, but I don't know if I made a sound. And the first thing he said was, don't scream or I'll stop you. Yes. I didn't scream. Mm-hmm. Could you I, see the knife or was it something that he sort of implied he had? He just said it. Uh-huh. He said it and I didn't think to question that. <laughs> like, yeah. Prove it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was just... I was going to do what I needed to do to stay alive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he he pushed me over to my passenger seat and climbed into my driver's seat. And something that he said many, 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 many times during the rape was, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. I know where you live. If you tell anyone, I'll come back and kill you. Those things were said multiple times to me. Um, my nervous system went into freeze. Mm-hmm. People talk a lot about fight or flight. That is not what happened inside of me. What happened was freeze. Yes. And a lot of people experience that. So and then yeah. are made to feel shameful. Yeah. Because they didn't fight. They didn't run. Yes. No, I think freeze is one of the most common responses that Mm -hmm. people have to sexual assault. And when you're in freeze, you are not capable of running, fighting, screaming. Uh, I've actually seen PET scans and Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. There's actually a picture of a a PET scan, a brain scan of somebody in the state of freeze. Mm -hmm. And there's this one tiny area of the brain that's lit up and that is the area that keeps us breathing. Mm-hmm. That is it. Everything else is offline. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, after the fact, over years, uh, it became clear to me that what was happening, what happens probably when people go into freeze is that you're turning an animal event into a human event. I absolutely believe that I did the right thing and that that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. He came in as an animal. Mm-hmm. And I responded as a human. When he wanted me to be on my stomach, he wanted, he, well, first he made me take all of my clothes off. I was on my period. Um, 
But the first thing after I took off my clothes, put them on the floor of the passenger's side of the car, and the first thing he wanted me to do was to be facing away from him. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be behind me. And the pressure of him being behind me was hurting my back. And I said so. That was the place where I did have a voice. Mm -hmm. That was the really, really purely human part of me. That was like, can we move? This is really hurting my back. Yeah, letting him know that you're a human being with feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he immediately found the, um, you know, the little lever to uh-huh. recline the seat. And recline the seat which didn't really help that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so since that was awkward... Um, he moved over back into the driver's seat again and uh, made me perform oral sex, mm. which was awful on so many levels. Yeah. So many levels. Uh, all I could imagine was that my blood, he and my blood were going to be in my mouth. Yeah. I guess when he got tired of that, he wanted he wanted to sit in the in the passenger seat because he then wanted me to get on top of him. Mm-hmm. But the steering wheel was was in the way, so he moved over to the passenger seat. And during that part of the rape, he made me kiss him. Mm-hmm. There's a reason in Pretty Woman <laughs> that she says she doesn't kiss yeah. her clients. <laughs> it's really intimate. Yeah. It felt really bad. Almost like he was taking another piece of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Asked me questions about myself that I didn't answer, answer truthfully. And then I thought my best shot was... Um, to say another true thing, which is that my roommate would be home anytime, mm-hmm. and I didn't want her to see him. And for whatever reason, he believed me, and he said, okay, and opened the door to get out, and the last thing he said was, I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah. 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 So he knew what he was doing was wrong. By that point, he did. Maybe because you helped him know that you were a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A really strange feeling to to hear both of those apologies. Like, am I allowed to say bad words? Yeah, of course. <laughs> we love bad words but, here. <laughs> I mean, it's a very much what the fuck experience. Yeah. In every part of you to have someone do that and then apologize yeah what are you supposed to do with that especially especially someone that doesn't know you yeah and just threatened to kill you yeah and just hurt you in a way that like there's no words for yeah 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 oh 
So I put my underwear and my pad and my shorts and my Birkenstocks with blood in them and my T-shirt back on and balled up my bra in my hand and waited for my friend. When she got there, I got out of my car and she was surprised to see me. And she was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I was just waiting for you. <laughs> and then I couldn't say anything else. I like, I remember I held up the bra. Mm, you couldn't say the words. I just, I don't know what I was trying to communicate, but it's like, there's a, there's a reason that I was waiting for you. She was really confused and I was like, I, I just can't, you know, I just kept walking and of course she's getting more and more confused and concerned. We got to the door of our building and as soon as we walked in, I took our names out of the little mailbox slot mm -hmm. that was for us. Took our names out. That upset her even more. Went up to our door, went inside, started looking under beds and behind doors. And just because maybe he did know which apartment we lived in. Maybe, yeah. I mean. Yeah, you didn't yeah. know if he'd been watching you. Yeah. Yeah. What if, what if? And as soon as I had checked all around the apartment, uh, the first thing I did was brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. And then later I got in trouble for that. Yeah. But I can imagine the instinct just to get all of that out of your mouth mm -hmm. was so overpowering. Yeah. Yeah. And I still hadn't said a word to my friend. Um, she just followed me and stayed right by me. And after I brushed my teeth, I went and sat on the floor by my bed with my, you know, hugging my knees. And I told her what happened she immediately called my my boyfriend who wasn't my boyfriend anymore mm. but you had just broken up just like a yeah. few days before yeah. right it had been a, a good experience mm -hmm. and then when I was done I was done mm -hmm. um and I honestly forgot that I had broken up with him mm. I forgot and he was the first person that she thought to call uh, we didn't call my mom right away because it was the middle of the night and she's home with, you know, my sister, my stepdad, and an 11-month-old baby. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll just call my boyfriend. My boyfriend came over immediately. He's storming in. He's so angry and, you know, just wants to go back out and find the guy and kill him. And, you know, this is the kind of response that I got from a lot of uh, men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because anger is the only acceptable emotion. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah. People just wanted to find him and kill him as mm -hmm. if it were that simple. So uh, the three of us each got a knife from the kitchen and walked out to his car and he drove the three of us to the emergency room. In the emergency room, they wanted to do a rape kit which is why I was in trouble for brushing my teeth. And the only doctors available to do the rape kit were men. Mm. And they expected me to go along with it. Yeah. And I don't know if our listeners are acquainted with what having a rape kit done mm. entails, but it is an incredibly invasive thing. It's 
somebody inserting a speculum into a vagina that has just recently been assaulted and mm-hmm. it's somebody, you know, plucking pubic hairs mm-hmm. from your body and scraping your fingernails and it's it's very uh it can be painful. Um Yeah. It was the first pelvic exam I would ever had. Yeah. You know, and I'm wearing paper and I'm under fluorescent lights and yeah. all of that. But, but you knew that you couldn't handle a male doctor doing that. No, absolutely not. And at that point, my mom had been called and was on the way. So when she got there, she went to talk to the doctors and was just an incredible advocate for me um, and just made it perfectly clear that that would not be happening. And that they would find a female doctor who would come to the hospital to do the rape kit. So they did find somebody, um, somebody that I will always be grateful to. She didn't work at the hospital, but she came to do the rape kit the next morning. So that night, I had to go home wearing the same clothes. I wasn't allowed to change. I wasn't allowed to bathe. Mm. And then come back first thing in the morning. So the next day was the rape kit. That was the paper gown and the fluorescent lights and the first pelvic exam, the speculum. And my gynecologist had to use pediatric speculums for my exams for years after that. Oh. For years. Pediatric yeah. speculum. I hate, that, I hate that those even exist. What, anyhow. Right. But um, that's because it's the trauma of what you went through caused you to contract so much mm-hmm. anytime anybody tried to use a speculum after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would. they would prescribe uh, something like Valium mm-hmm. and use a pediatric speculum. Mm-hmm. But that time, I didn't know what to expect, and I don't really remember that part of it. The part I remember, for whatever reason, is the paper gown, the fluorescent lights, and having pubic hairs pulled out of my body. Mm-hmm. So after everything was done, they took my clothes and my shoes with blood in them and put them in an evidence bag. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I was supposed to bring other clothes to change into. I didn't know they were going to take everything. So they found something for me somewhere to wear home again. And my mom took me from there back to the apartment so that I could get some things to take back to her house. And when we got there, there was a police car parked behind my car and a policeman standing behind my car talking to my dad. And I got out of my mom's car and I screamed at them. Mm -hmm. I was so terrified. In my mind, in that moment, he knew I had told. Mm-hmm. And he knew where I lived and he was going to come back and kill me. Mm-hmm. I have uh, apologized to my dad <laughs> for that since then. He was trying to do something to help. Right. He and I hadn't talked about what had happened. My mom had called him. Yeah. He was trying to help. Yeah. But I screamed at them. Yeah. My dad left, 
the police officer told me I needed to drive my car to the police station and leave it with them. So you had to get back in this car that you were just assaulted in? Yeah. Blood on the seat from my period. Blood on the seat. There was, you know, the uh, passenger seat was still tipped back all the way. And yeah, yeah. I had to drive it alone to the police station and then go in and sit in an interrogation room. It's another fluorescent light. (laughs) You hadn't even had the chance to shower, to, you know, have even a minute to yourself to process this. No, it was all about evidence. It was all about... It was about the police feeling like they had done what they were supposed to do, even though they totally failed me that day. Mm. Maybe there are places where there's a nicer option for an 18-year-old who's just been assaulted, a nicer place for them to sit and talk about what happened. Mm -hmm. I sat in that room and I told the story again. And then they wanted a description of the man who had gotten into my car in the dark and said, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. I'll come back and kill you. Right. A lot later, I realized I had caught a glimpse of him. But in that moment, I had no idea. I could not give any kind of description. And so they just had me look at old licenses, revoked licenses, mugshots. Wow. See if anything rang a bell. Which was absolutely the wrong thing to do. Yeah, yeah absolutely decreased the chances that I would ever be able to give any kind of description. Yeah, just confusing your brain with all of these different sets of eyes eyes and nose and ears. and mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So after that, I was able to go home and I don't remember anything. Yeah. And did you, just out of a sense of like pressure, pick somebody who, you know, no. they were showing you, no, okay. No. You knew you didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was no way. But I'm sure that happens. Well, yeah. Just get it over with. I mean, you. I'm, I imagine you desperately just want to go home at that point. Mm-hmm. So if you think you could just say, that guy, and it'll make it stop, I would think... Mm-hmm. Lots of people would do that. I'm sure. I'm sure, but I couldn't do that. And the next thing that I do remember was that not too long after, I don't know if it was weeks or months or a year, but um, there were some other rapes that happened in Bloomington. And one of them was in that same apartment complex. Um, someone that time it wasn't in the parking lot in a car. It was um, that they had broken in through a window. Hmm. And were you still living in this apartment complex oh, at no. the time? Okay. No, my dad, uh, that was a way that he was able to help really well. He advocated for us in that situation. They weren't going to let us out of the lease, even though they knew what had happened. And he, he made threats, but not in the way that you just go in, you know, loudly making random threats. He said, you will let them out of this lease 
If you don't, I will go to the paper and tell the story. I will sue you to have lighting put into the parking lot. And they didn't want to deal with any of that. So that was that. But no, I couldn't even drive past those apartments for... I didn't drive past them for 10 years. On the 10th anniversary, I went back on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So you found out that someone else had been raped in the same apartment. So I imagine Mm -hmm. that your hopes that this person might get caught were rising. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, of course it's the same person, right? And then there were some others around that same time. And the last woman... um, her system went into fight. She bit him. And he hit her, broke her nose. They both ended up in the ER. But that's how he got caught. Mm-hmm. He had to go to the ER because she had bitten him. And so when they determined that all of those rapes had been committed by the same man, I thought, surely it was mine too. And I was the only one. Who wasn't? Oh, I'm so sorry. And I cried. I remember crying. Yeah. So hard. I was so angry. Yeah. Because that meant that I was going to continue every time I left my house to smell someone that smelled like him Mm. and to see someone that could be him. Yeah. And I was never going to know and I was never going to stop wondering and getting sick to my stomach when I smelled that cologne and... And I imagine that that fear of him coming back and hurting you again, it just stays with you, right? Forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there you were, 18 years old, and your life had changed in an instant, just Mm -hmm. completely changed. Mm Mm-hmm. What were the first weeks and months like when, you know, you went to live with, you, you were living with your dad, right? You moved yeah. in with him. First, I went back to my mom's. Hmm. Uh, my dad sold his house that was in the country so that he could be in town, so that I could be in town. And I wanted to go to school. And he bought a place near the university. Um, and eventually, so I stayed there for a while and I started taking classes part-time at IU. I didn't feel like I could handle full-time at that point. Um, And eventually moved into my own place. So I actually lived alone from about 19 to 33. And um, the idea was for me to have some independence but in a carefully chosen place where I had the best chance of feeling safe on my own. Mm -hmm. Not that I did, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it was my best chance at having independence and relative safety. And just knowing a little bit more about your story, this feels so courageous to me Mm -hmm. because I know that you really struggled with being alone in that first year after the rape. I... I remember you telling me that you arrived home uh, one one evening uh, just after it had gotten dark and you mm-hmm. were so scared 
just too scared to even get out of your car. Yeah. Yeah, I never went anywhere after dark, but in the winter, sometimes that was challenging. And that was when I still lived uh, with my dad. And I, so I knew that he was inside. Mm -hmm. The front door was 20 feet from the parking space. I couldn't do it. I sat in my car and cried for probably half an hour until he realized I was there and he came out. Yeah. Yeah, so you were really just recently in that place, and mm-hmm. then you made the decision to live on your own, which is mm-hmm. so courageous. I couldn't have done it if it hadn't had uh, a garage, an attached garage with an automatic door. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of the main things that made it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that house, I had escape routes planned out in my mind, and I went over them every night. And when it would snow, I would have trouble sleeping. Mm -hmm. Because if it snowed and I escaped through my window, then my footprints would give me away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I did. I I lived alone. I worked. I went to school. Got really good grades. (laughs) Even though I felt like I wasn't trying hard enough. Um... Yeah. During that time, uh, someone I was deeply in love with killed himself. And I mean, a lot of other things happened. Mm -hmm. A lot of other things happened. And somehow, you know, I I found ways. I found ways to get through it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might not have been conventional ways. I mean, I... I read lots of Sark books. <laughs> do you know her work? No, yeah. no, I don't think I do. <laughs> but, you know, I read these books that really helped me, and I created artwork that was really cathartic. And, um, yeah. 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 You know, one thing that you've mentioned about um, your experience at 14 and how you coped with that, that, had really struck me was it sounds like you used a lot of disassociation that you Mm -hmm. were really out of your body that, you know, I didn't know I was gaining weight. I didn't Mm -hmm. know I was losing weight, you know, Mm -hmm. that there was this uh, disconnect between you and your body. And I imagine that you probably experienced something like that after the second rape as well, sort of a disconnection. And as Mm -hmm. you're talking about the things that you did to heal, it also feels like these things that sort of connect you to these interior parts Mm -hmm. of you, Mm -hmm. um, which feels like such a powerful thing for survivors to do, to sort of like reclaim these core parts of themselves. And then also these parts that you sort of have to be in your body to uh, be with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and ways of finding social connection that didn't involve being outside of my house. Mm-hmm. It didn't involve being around people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the like the advent of things like uh, message boards on your dial-up computer, and you know, uh, I found one that you know, like once a week, there would be a new posting of things on this message board, and it was Sark's message board. Um, and that was really important. I mm-hmm. had no idea how helpful that would be, but I could have connections. Yeah. Without feeling unsafe. Yeah. That was really incredible. 
did a lot of volunteer work right after. That is the main thing that I did. Um, I did a lot of volunteering at Community Kitchen uh, in the first year. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that was really helpful, too, because I had a role to play. Yeah. It wasn't just being social. I had a role to play, and I could feel like I was doing something worthwhile. Mm-hmm. That was really helpful. Yeah, maybe even reclaiming some of your identity. Yeah, like, I can't change the fact that I am here to nurture everything. <laughs> Everyone, everything. Um, I can't. I can't not do that. Mm-hmm. And that did. It was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we spoke earlier, it just seemed like that first couple of years held so much of what, you know, I as a therapist sort of recognize as PTSD. Mm-hmm. Did you know that you had PTSD or did, you know, did this just feel like part of the experience without sort of having a name for it? I imagine that that term came up in some some context. I my mom took me to two different doctors. Um, both of them handled things poorly. Um, they, you know, they like didn't diagnose me with anything, but one of them wanted to give me antidepressants. Mm. And at that time, I just felt like fuck you. Yeah. I have a really good reason to feel the way I feel right now. Yeah. I'm not just going to block it out. Yeah. And the other one told me that I seemed so strong and, you know, she, you know, whatever it was she said, she was so strong. I didn't, I didn't seem like someone who had been raped. She told me that privately. She told my mother privately, oh, I could tell, I could tell when you came in here that your daughter had been violated. Oh, wow. So these experiences of people who are supposed to be able to help were not helpful um, until I I went to two different support groups through Middle Way. Mm -hmm. Those were somewhat helpful. Um, I really wish that there could be support groups specifically for date rape survivors and different support groups specifically for blitz rape Survivors, because they are not the same experience. Yeah. But I imagine that we talked about PTSD in those groups. Um, I think I was aware of it, but certainly nobody ever gave me a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you shared with me before this interview that I just feel like it's important to share with listeners is that experience of being in your home and feeling as if someone is there and needing to check. Mm-hmm. Could you describe that a little bit? So when I would drive into my garage, I would watch in my rear mirror to make sure nobody ran in under the door before it closed. Uh, we, we had a security system installed. So I'd go in, I'd turn that off, and then I would go through the house in a certain pattern, looking behind everything and under everything. Um, I had gotten a dog at some point. She was the best dog in the whole world. And knowing that she was behaving normally when I came in was also really helpful. Mm -hmm. Because they don't, they act differently. 
if mm-hmm. something's wrong. So um, knowing the alarm hadn't been tripped, knowing that my dog was acting normal, allowed me to actually like be brave enough to go check everything. Mm-hmm. And then you know, special window locks and you know, special like those kick sticks that you put under your doorknobs. So if somebody tries to kick in the door, that you know, all these things in place. And yeah, that was just my routine. Yeah, yeah. I left an abusive marriage in 2018, mm-hmm. and uh, it had gotten really physically violent uh, mm-hmm. in the last year. And um, I, I also had that same experience of oh. needing to check. Yeah. And I remember, you know, walking through my house and having these conversations in my head of like. Maribai, <laughs> the door has been locked. You mm-hmm. know that there's not anyone here. Mm-hmm. Why Why are you doing this? And I had to do it. Yes. And I remember feeling every time I would have to put my hand on the doorknob of the next closet, mm-hmm. just like shaking and just feeling so sure that when I opened that door, there was going to be someone there. Mm-hmm. Even though there, it was absolutely irrational there was not there was not any evidence to suggest that anyone was in the house and it was such an odd experience and and even you know actively working as a therapist in the at the time Mm -hmm. it still felt just so confusing to me so necessary you know yeah yeah uh and yeah I just think that's something that a lot of people don't understand about the lingering impact of when somebody hurts you, mm-hmm. you know, that it's not just this experience that you have and then, you know, you move on. It's right. there are there are these ways in which it puts a terror in you that you are then working with and grappling with for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you start to notice um that that terror was shifting, that you were starting to feel like you were kind of living with that less? Mm. I think it was after I came back from traveling alone. Um, When I finished college, I traveled, um, let's see. Oh, when I finished college, I went to Alaska by myself. Um, So I flew to Fairbanks and I got a rental car and I went all over the place. I was alone and I loved it and it was amazing and everybody couldn't believe that I wanted to do that. My uncle made me get a cell phone. Um, It was a great experience. Mm -hmm. So, so good. And I think just, again, because it's not a rational vigilance that you develop, being away from the place where it happened allows you to breathe a little easier. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm alone in Alaska. I'm staying in hostels, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, being offered a job in a cafe in my favorite town. Uh, you know, these things that just like, wow, that's so cool. It never would have happened. None of these things would have happened. Um, it's almost like you are taking something back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't scared there, which was a huge surprise to me. Mm-hmm. It's really surprising. 
And then um, came back to Bloomington, and about four years later, three years later, I um, I took another trip because I was well, I was twenty nine, and I remember just being like, "Oh my god, I've never left Bloomington. I've never, I never considered going anywhere else for college. I never." You know? mm-hmm. My brother was still pretty young at the point. Um, but I just had this moment of like, I have to go do something before I t- turn thirty. Um, and so I took a really long road trip by myself in an old Dodge Caravan and went back to West Virginia to visit the community where I had spent the first four years. And just an incredible, incredible experience. It was so healing. And after that, I flew out to the coast of Oregon and found a little place above somebody's garage. And I stayed there for six weeks actually with the intention of writing a book about these things. Mm. Couldn't do it. I could not write it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready. Yeah. But that's when, that's when that started to shift. Mm -hmm. And um, the next two places I lived, I felt pretty safe. Even though I didn't have a dog, that was, that was pretty telling to me that that healing was happening, was that I didn't even have a dog and I felt okay. I didn't mm-hmm. have a garage to pull into and I felt okay. Um, so, yeah, it's just gotten better and better Yeah, from then on. The thing that didn't get better as quickly was the effect of the date rape. Mm. That didn't get better as fast, even though you might, one might <laughs> imagine that that would be easier to recover from. Tell me more about that. The date rape affected my ability to trust people that said they cared about me. Mm-hmm. So that's forever. That's forever that you're going to meet people that you have to decide whether you trust them. Mm-hmm. And it was really, 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 really hard um, to trust anybody with my emotional safety. I was never afraid of anybody physically that I was in a relationship with or a friendship with. Um, But emotionally, Mm -hmm. very, very guarded and pushed people away, even though that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. It's one of those hurt people, hurt people things. Um, Actually full circle because I knew because I am my mother's daughter that the man who raped me in the parking lot was a hurt person. And I know now that I hurt people mm-hmm. because I was hurting and I couldn't let them all the way in. Yeah. So that, yeah, that had a much bigger impact on my personal life than the blitz rape because that affects, you know, it affected for me my... Uh, my capacity to feel safe in the in my community that had felt safe or you know feel physically safe mm-hmm. at night, that kind of thing. Um, but ultimately, it took a lot less time to heal from, and my body did not gain a bunch of weight after that. Mm-hmm. After the blitz rape, it happened again after uh, my boyfriend's suicide. And it happened again um, during a relationship that turned out to be uh, 
full of deceit and icky stuff. Um, so it's almost like that weight gain is self-protective. It is. It's a it's a very personal thing. Like the weight gain, the the blitz rape is not personal. Mm-hmm. It's not personal. It's terrifying mm-hmm. and damaging, but not personal. And so the personal stuff is what my body has uh, responded to in ways that I've not been aware of while it's happening. Yeah. It's interesting in the therapy world, we call you know, when somebody who you who you love and trust and think should be there to protect you hurts you. We call that an attachment injury. Mm-hmm. And uh, it almost seems like that first boyfriend gave you an attachment injury. Mm-hmm. And those are very hard to heal from. That's I notice with my survivors that um, we can usually get the PTSD symptoms under control really fast and mm-hmm. kind of get the the fear and even you know the, some of the self-worth stuff you know you know cared for pretty quickly but the the attachment injury the the trust mm-hmm. the feeling safe in relationships that can take a really long time yes yes absolutely and you know I got married when I was 42 <laughs> yeah and yeah, I mean, things happen if if we stay open. And somehow, I actually trust my husband. Yes, <laughs> it's lovely. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. healing happens. Um, it really does. It takes longer than we want it to, mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of support. Um, I can't imagine having gone through all of that without my family. Mm-hmm. I have an incredible family. And I guess that would be my wish for people is if you don't have a family that's supportive, find people that are. Yeah. Because those people exist and those people want to be there. Yeah. And they'll listen. They'll listen and they'll validate you. And they will know you did nothing wrong. because. Yeah. Anyone that any of this happens to did not do anything wrong. That is so true. That is so true. You did not make the choice to have that experience. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And I really do appreciate you talking about um, that instinct to survive and how it manifested in you. Mm-hmm. Because I think that it's so powerful. It know? is. And I want anyone else that has had that response in a dangerous situation to really honor that they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. We hear, you know, I love that this is uh, the badass podcast because I have certainly never thought of myself in those terms. You know, the badass is the one who bites the guy. The badass is the one who, you know, breaks his nose, who fights him off and runs away and, you know, otherwise... You didn't try hard enough to get out of it. And mm. that, that's bullshit. It is. <laughs> yeah. It is bullshit. Yeah. And I think what you did, the way that you allowed him to see your humanity, I think you did save your life. Yeah. Yeah. And that was strong and that was courageous. 
Thank you. I finally think so too. <laughs> yeah. It's taken a long time to see myself the way other people have been able to see me. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh yeah, I am strong and I am brave. Yeah. And I am resilient and I've gone through so many more hard things since then, you know, taking care of dying parents and I can I can handle anything. Yeah. I wish I wish we didn't have to. I wish we didn't have to. But Amen. Amen yeah. to that. <laughs> with the right support. With the right support and patience and time we can. Yeah. Well, if you uh if you will accept it, I think you are absolutely a badass. A hundred percent. I'm going to claim it. 45 yes. and a half, and I'm going to claim it. And yes. I'm going to hold on to that for the second half of my life. <laughs> Most excellent. Yes. And this, what you're doing is so important. I honestly, just after talking to you the other day, felt like I was changed. Oh. So, oh. thank you. Oh, boy, I tell you what, I haven't cried during any of these interviews, and then today it's twice. <laughs> Thank you. I had never shared those stories the way that I shared them with you, because I didn't want to make people uncomfortable. Oh. And you gave me space to share every detail. <sighs> and that was a whole new level of healing. Oh. Thank you. You're so welcome. (sighs) (laughs) Tap, tap. (laughs) And, you know, I just hope that anyone who is out there and listening who has had a similar experience or knows someone who has, I just hope that you can take this and really feel the connection and really know that you are not alone. And that there are people in the world who will be a compassionate witness for your story. Mm-hmm. Just keep looking. Yeah. Anna, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for, yeah, for this opportunity. It's really big. <sighs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Anna's story today. Both Anna and I wanted to clarify one thing. When we were talking about how Anna survived her sexual assaults in this episode, we were talking about Anna as an individual. While there might be points of connection where you could really resonate with her story, maybe because of something that had happened to you, it is important to remember that we all find our ways through these deeply scary experiences, and there is no such thing as a right or wrong way. So if your experience is different from Anna's, we hope you feel no sense of judgment. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the badass team's life partners, Alex and Amy, 
who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. 